Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Yep, one day there'll be a different intro for Sunday mailbags, but not today because it's still special. It's still a mailbag and, well, still an episode, I suppose. I'm Scott Phillips, believe it or not, and with me is the straw man himself, Andrew Page. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, sir. Yourself? I'm I'm exceptionally well. I'm encouraged by the launch of Strawman Premium that you were telling us about on Friday. Mm -hmm. By now, for all we know, the doors are closed, you're full or not. So if people want to go to strawman.com, they can at least see if there are still options to join. Is that right? Yeah, well, again, as you know, we we are pre-recording, so anything can happen in the next three days. (laughs) And probably will. Yeah, I mean, we're well over halfway and only eight hours in. So it's, look, whatever happens from here, we we know we've got a bit of a, we've got a a pretty cool inner call that... um, we're going to hit the ground running, so I'm 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 pretty stoked. But yeah, even yeah, even mate. if we are full, there's there's you know you can manage a, a play money portfolio. You can use Strawman as an investment diary. So we we'd invite you to come along and check it out either way. There you go, Strawman.com. Uh, of Thanks, course, mate. I work for the Motley Fool, fool.com.au, uh, where we try and pick some stocks. So hopefully, we'll continue to beat the market. So far, so good. Uh, Andrew, of course, is a former Motley Fool employee and a friend of the Fool for Life, um, and we're very, very pleased that he's joined us on the podcast. Because, mate, can I tell you, despite my best efforts, people are still happy to see you back. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I guess I've got to just accept what I'm, what I'm, what I'm dealt with. I thought I was the star around here, but it turns out people care about you more than me, which I'm not even slightly bitter about, and that's encouraging. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. Uh, I just get into the email account before you do and delete all the bad ones. So that's, <laughs> nice. that's yeah, the that's secret right. there. <laughs> it helps. Plus, you've got a big family and, you know, if all your family write in and say how wonderful you are, then I suppose, you know, that's going to happen. It is a mate, Catholic um, background, so. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. we got a heap of questions as always, mate, so let's get on with it. Um, here's a really simple one with a potentially complex answer, so I'm going to ask you for it. Peter okay. says, hey, Scott, I've got a question for the pod, perhaps. Can you explain why the net asset value per share varies compared to the share price of a listed fund. And he gives an example where a company's got a $1.99 net asset value but is selling for $1.80. Now, Andrew, I'm going to start you off with a challenge. I'm going to make you try and define our terms. So what is the net asset value and why should it be something correlated to the share price? Oh, man. It's one of those really easy questions, but it's also one that, you know, as you dig into, yeah. things, things can get complicated. <laughs> but at, at a high level, it's it's really basic. Every business has a balance sheet. Everything they've, you know, that they, all the assets and cash that they own versus all the things that they owe to other people. Yep. And the net difference is the net assets, and you know, mm-hmm. or, or it's otherwise known as the equity uh, of the business. And um, it depends on the type of business. Some businesses are very asset intensive. You need a tractor, you need a truck, you need a factory, that kind of thing. Other businesses don't really have much tangible assets. If you're an accounting mm-hmm. practice, you've got a coffee machine, a photocopier and a, and a laptop <laughs> type, type thing. Right. So right. so in some sense, in situations, it makes sense for the, the share price to be similar to the net asset value because maybe maybe that's the only value that's there. Mm-hmm. But really, and this is this is more and more true these days, the value of a business is, is more than the sum of its parts. It's the enterprising capacity of all of the employees and, and management that are there. It's what they can, um, what value they can deliver and, and therefore get paid for. So most companies trade well above their net asset value um, and and they should. Um, right. So, so and, and don't forget the, those value, the value you have in terms of your net asset value is only sort of worked out once a year when the accountants put the balance sheet together uh, and the share price is going to change every day. So um, yeah, you. Some people like to sort of go for these what they call what Buffett called cigar butts, where you can find mm-hmm. situations where the share price is really close to or below net asset value, which means right. that even if the business doesn't do that well at all, there's a bit of security in knowing that 
with the right management team, they might just wrap the business up, sell all the yeah. assets, pay off the debts, and then distribute what's left over to shareholders. Yeah. That doesn't always happen because people people <laughs> tend to to like you know going out with a fight. But but yeah, is that that's a, that's a high level answer? What, what what would you expand on there? So I think that's exactly right. In this case, I think the question is being asked about a listed investment company. And if you're a fund or an investment company, it makes sense that your asset value should roughly correspond with your share price, right? Because let's say you are an investment fund and your business is taking money and investing that money and your share price should be correlated with the ownership of those assets. If I was, let's keep it very, very simple. If I had the Scott and Andrew Investment Fund and it was listed on the ASX, and we invested in cash. And we, uh, we had $100 of cash in this investment business. You should expect, so the net asset value would be $100, makes sense, right? All we do is cash mm-hmm. and we've got it there and it's in the bank. So our asset value, our net asset value is 100 bucks. You should assume if you added all those shares together, you'd be silly to pay $110 for $100 in cash. And if you were, if the shares were only worth $70, well, someone would say, hang on, I can buy the whole business for $70 and get $100 in cash. So there's an upside there. So the natural arbitrage should see the net asset value and the share price kind of trade in in tandem, right? Because a big discount or a big premium and the market should sort those out. Fair to say? Mm. Yeah, I think all else being equal, but you do have to factor in the optionality of that $100. You could and that's be, where we get to. Exactly, John. <laughs> well, you could be a, a genius capital allocator and you're going to yep. take that $100 and you're going to invest it in all kinds of different things and you're going to grow it into a much lo- larger uh, amount than it is today. So that's... Yep. That's what you, you what, what you're paying for. Sometimes you actually see some listed investment companies trade a bit below and actually stay there for a while, which has got to be a little bit impactful to <laughs> to the uh, to the managers <laughs> of the business. But right, right. You would expect all else being equal that that gap to close, but I think it's also natural to, to see it usually trade at a premium, as I say, for that optionality. Yeah, I think this is where when you talk about a listed investment company, then you're actually adding together the value of the assets it owns, which kind of should have some of that optionality built in, right? If you Let's say we did have $100 in cash, we had $100 in BHP shares. You should expect that the BHP share price and our, and our asset price for the fund would trade roughly the same because, again, those assets are absolutely manageable and, and uh, comparable on the market. Mm. You can simply say, well, hang on, I know what these are selling for. So, again, if you had $100 worth of BHP shares in the fund and the fund's selling for 70 bucks, you should be able to go, well, hang on, I can buy the fund cheaper than BHP, so I'll do that. Or mm. if the fund's selling for more, someone's going to say, well, hang on, why would I pay... 110 bucks for 110 dollars worth of BHP shares, I'll buy them directly. So over yeah. time, it should be the case, um, to the question, Peter, that the net asset value should trade roughly the same as the fund value. A couple of things I'll add to your answer, Ram, in a listed investment company or fund um, uh, context is, firstly, there can be tax obligations that aren't captured in the net asset value. So if they made a big capital mm-hmm. gain, if they were to um, sell, those, sell that, those assets, go back to cash, they'd have to pay a tax bill. So $100 worth of assets at today's price might only be, say, $85 after tax. So there's reasons why you might want to pay less because to get that value back, you'd have to pay the tax bill. And so that's important. Um, You also should recognize the cost of managing that particular fund or investment company. If your Mm -hmm. fund manager is taking out 1% as as a fee, if you capitalize that, we won't get into the details of capitalizing it, but effectively, if you said, okay, if I'm if we're going to sort of put a, a dollar value on the the full cost of that of that management, it'll be up to five, seven, eight, ten percent of the fund value in capitalized cost. Um, so those are kind of some of the reasons why you might see it uh, trade at a slightly different price or different value. All things being equal, it should be pretty close. 
Um, but that's when you will see it. I think they're the only really significant reasons I can think of that make a difference. Um, and they can, the other one I would say, by the way, I mean, it's just standard market efficiency, right? If you've got a small, mm. you've got a small yeah. fund or a small company, if you simply don't have enough people following it, then you'd expect that to be the case. Even the big ones, Sol Pats, I own shares, as our listeners well know, often trades at a big discount. Mm. And for no really good reason, there's, there's often this thing called a conglomerate discount where investors are in theory saying, well, the assets, I could buy them myself and it'd be cheaper and more liquid and, and you're probably going to sell them anyway. So there's some sort of inherent discount in that. Um, Sol Pats has proven over, by the way, 15 plus years, well, over decades probably. It probably deserves a conglomerate premium rather than discount. Uh, but again, you know, the market can also just be straight out wrong. And so that's the other reason why that you can't, you can't explain it. You can't, you can't kind of define it academically or theoretically, but sometimes it's just the way things go. I would add, I would just add to it as well. While it's yeah, a, an interesting observation, it's and again as I always say, each to their mm-hmm. own. You you do you, but but for me, it's sort of like I the it wouldn't be the sole reason as to why I would buy a listed fund, for example, because yeah, for whatever whatever discount there is probably not going to be. It's like it's like a Florence uh, mm-hmm. Florency currency fluctuations. <laughs> Florency fluctuation. That's a much better. Well, term yeah, that's, that <laughs> be careful what I say there. <laughs> so that, that's a that's a situation where again that's just got to factor in. But over yeah. time, if this is a great investment or a poor investment, there are bigger factors at play. Yeah. Um, and I would say that too. I so I would want to be buying into a fund because I was a believer in the management and way they were going to take take things uh, in the future. Yeah. yeah. If I get a nice discount, that's that's an added reason. But it's just. Not, I would never have it as my only reason because something could be at a discount, stay at a discount, and maybe they just run it really badly, and you just you just continue to get a great discount on a declining net asset value over time. So, yeah, don't don't, don't let it be your primary focus or, or <laughs> the core of any strategy. Yep, good good advice. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah, that's kind of valuation generally. Made a question from Gary on a similar but different question, just around market mechanics. And Gary says, hi, Scott, I've got another question for the podcast, the awesome podcast, I should say. Gee, I almost lost that. I should also mention Gary thinks we're awesome. Gary says, we're awesome. We're awesome, Andrew. He says, I just started investing in US shares and my broker offers partial shares. For example, he says, I can buy 1.234 units. I'm curious as to how this works if you're not buying an entire share. Then he goes on to say, also, how do you record your US dividend income? If I leave the dividend in US dollars to reinvest, how do I record this as Australian income? Thanks, Gary. Uh, what do you want to do, mate? Do you want to do the dividends or you want to do the uh, partial ownership? I'll do the partial ownership Go if for you it. like. Can you, can um, you really have a fractional share? How does that actually work? Well, what you do is that some someone's manufacturing a, a product behind the scenes and mm-hmm. so they'll actually buy a bunch of shares and then they'll break them up <clears throat> into partial shares so there'll be some trust structure that sits behind it. So what you're actually getting are units in a trust. Yeah. Now, there's a million different ways I'm sure that you can set this up. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I should say, so with Strawman, we've partnered with Upstreet actually. So we're mm-hmm. issuing partial shares to our contributors um, if, oh, yeah. if they rank well. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool. I mean, it's, what's nice about it is that, you know, if you wanted to buy a very expensive, when I say expensive, a high price share like CSL and you didn't have that much money, you could do it. Um, yeah. So, I, I, but I would look into. I think it is always worth looking into the detail. What what fees are there? What risks yeah. are there? Where's the legal full beneficial ownership rest? Mm-hmm. All, all of that kind of stuff. Because so, it, it, and then I, as I say, there is a there's a variety there. Yeah. But overall, providing the, it's not too onerous and providing there's not really a good reason as to why you wouldn't just buy the shares yourself directly. Yeah, um, yeah I think they've got merit. So I'm going to add to that, mate, only because I do own some US shares and I have in the past had partial shares. I don't for not. No, no, no reasons regarded to the partial shares. I sold the company I had partial shares in. Um, I had a dividend reinvestment plan, and in the US, the brokers run the dividend reinvestment, not the companies. 
And so I think right. I was thinking it was Walmart years ago and I had, you know, 38.146 shares or something. So the broker gave me partial shares. In the US, you actually don't own, if you own through a centre broker, you don't own the shares in your own legal, as your own legal entity. Okay. You have a beneficial interest, as you say, in the shares held by the registrar on your behalf. And so effectively, I don't want this to sound too... Uh, dodgy, but I also don't want to sound too confident because I've said before, I think chess that we have here to protect our interests is a wonderful thing. It's great. In the US, if I own, so I own my shares uh, through Charles Schwab, I actually don't own those shares technically as a legal ownership. I have a beneficial interest in them, as you mentioned before, mate. Right. So, so Schwab so has- So if they, if they collapsed, for, for example, you could potentially lose your, your shares. Right. Now, there's an insurance scheme and other things behind that, which is why I don't gotcha. make it sound too dodgy. But yeah. effectively, because- So I own, let's say I owned 100 shares of Berkshire Hathaway, just to pick the number, won't be the A-class shares that are trading at hundreds of thousands that'd, that'd of dollars. That'd be nice. Yeah. It would be lovely. It would be lovely. Uh, I do own a couple hundred B-class shares, but that's a very different story. Um, so, so yeah, I own, I own some Berkshire shares. Let's I owned 100 of them. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm entitled to the ownership and the proceeds of those shares, but I don't own them in a legal sense, in the sense that I can say to Berkshire, look, you know, I own 100 of your shares, unless Berkshire themselves issue me the share certificate. Now, what that also means, if I want to buy 101.359 shares and Schwab want to basically allow me to do that, they'll simply take the equivalent amount of money and then promise me that I can re- get back an, an appropriate amount of money if and when I want to part company with those shares. So I say to Schwab, hey, sell my 101.359 shares and that will give me the equivalent cash based on the same calculation. But because in the end, I actually don't own the shares anyway in a, in a legal sense, it's kind of like a bank account, right? I, I know I've got hundred bucks in the bank account. I don't know which hundred dollars are mine specifically. I just know I own hundred dollars worth of the bank's assets. And so that will give me a different hundred. If I go and put a hundred dollar note across the counter, when I want it back, they don't keep that hundred dollar note and give it back to me specifically they give me back another $100 note. And the same with the partial fractional shares. Um, if I you know, buy 101.359 shares, when I want to sell them, they'll give me the cash equivalent at the current share price. So mm. that's how you can have it. It's all, it's all pure accounting. It's just bookkeeping. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of useful because it actually highlights the fact that you actually don't own the shares. It's a nice reminder that you can't own a, par- a portion of an actual share. So what's going on, uh, which is what prompted Gary's question and why the answer is important. Yeah. Um, the dividend income, Gary. I'm not a tax expert, mate. My understanding is that uh, you, accru- you you earn the income at the then exchange rate. So, um, if you were to get $100 US worth of dividends today, uh, and the exchange rate was 75 cents, then you would have 100 was it 33 odd Australian dollars worth of taxable income as of today. Um, I don't know whether you can elect to tr- to translate that to Australian income at certain days of the year or at certain times. My understanding is it's always been done at the time of payment. Uh, but as always, when it comes to tax questions, we highly recommend you ask your financial advisor because uh, we're not tax experts, we're not tax accountants, so we, we can't help you with that one. Yep. Anything more on US dividends, mate? Nope, I think you covered it. Hey, Gary, I had a second question. He said, I just read this article online and interested in how you see this as a shareholder. Now, this was a couple of weeks ago and it was about... Jeff Bezos blasting into space <laughs> as Amazon. Well, he's not the CEO anymore. He's hand over the reins. Uh, probably nice, <laughs> nice timing because he then decided to go to space. Now we know nicely, happily, Jeff returned back to Earth, safe, well, happy, comfortable, uh, and that was an important thing. But uh, Gary kind of asked an interesting question. It, maybe it's not about so much the ability of management or the uh, the business choices of management, but whether or not I felt uncomfortable that the guy who runs uh, <laughs> one of the best biggest retailers in the world and a company I've got a, a decent shareholding in as a portion of my own wealth, not, not large in absolute sense, but, you know, important to my, to my financial future. How I felt about him blasting off into space. 
Um, Gary, I wasn't super excited about it, can I tell you? He's already handed over the reins, so I kind of get that he's stepping back and stepping aside a little bit. Um, all I'm saying is that if Bezos hadn't come back down because of some horrible, horrible accident, uh, I would have felt poorer as a shareholder. Now, I can't tell him what to do. I can't stop him doing what he wants to do. And, hey, if the alternative is he resigns altogether and then does it, um, I'd rather him still be connected to the company. So, yeah, look, given my choice, I would have happily said, look, send someone else. Just, you know, there's other people that are more expendable. Surely, Jeff. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> look, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't stoked about it. Jeff is the, the, uh, maybe the, the soul of the company in a way that some CEOs are. Uh, and look, I, I'm I'm very very glad he came back. I think my shares are worth more now he's back on Earth. I think Amazon's future is brighter the longer he spends at Amazon um, as as a controlling or or at least an influence of one description or another. So uh, yeah, not not stoked, but happy to see him come down. Do you have any thoughts, mate, in general on that kind of thing? CEOs taking risks or doing different stuff? Oh, you can't count for. I mean, you, you just want to. I guess that it. A company's more than just a man, more than just a person. So I think a characteristic of a great CEO is that they surround themselves with very capable yeah. people as well. So you would That's like to point. think that Jeff has done that and, and that things would still be okay. I'm sure Berkshire Hathaway shares, just speaking of them, I'm sure they'll take a hit when whenever Warren steps away for whatever reason mm-hmm. um, or, or Charlie. Um, but at the same time, I think they've built that thing to endure for a long, long time. And I think that's that's just one of the things that you consider. You know, it's all, the evaluation is always a, a game of pros and cons. What I will say is a bit of a left field observation. Okay, and I on. found, I came across this on, on Twitter. Someone was talking about, um, the, I think it was a white paper or something that Bezos wrote about the, the case for, called the case for space as to why they're going at it. So is, is this the feverish dreams of a billionaire, you know, doing <laughs> stupid things that only billionaires can do? <laughs> yeah. Maybe a little Probably. bit. Maybe that's, maybe that's a little bit true. Um, yeah. But I've got to say, for anyone who wants to know that, it is, it is a fascinating, articulate, well-reasoned mm. case that for, for economic, well, partly a little bit of touchy-feely, <laughs> good of hu- the long-term, you know, future mm. of humanity, Elon Musk kind of stuff, which, you know, maybe you take with a grain of salt, but also pretty hard-nosed too in some of its decisions. And so more about building the, 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 the rails for space, the architecture for space. So not mm. that that itself is going to deliver immediate value, but more about what it enables for the future. Mm. And it's just fascinating. And it's what you very rarely hear anyone, particularly, particularly CEOs, talk about mm. the, the future 100 <laughs> years from today, but, but talk about it seriously. Yeah. And yeah. Th- these guys seem to, I mean, I don't know, maybe I get a bit sucked into some of this stuff because I'm a bit, <laughs> of a, a bit of a nerd and I love space. But I, f- I feel as though while on one hand it's a reckless waste of money and as I say, the, 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 <laughs> the, the feverish dreams of a billionaire, there is something pretty cool about all this stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of tempting to say both, right? Like, there's plenty of these follies that actually do count for things eventually. Whether whether it's you know people would have criticised government spending on technology in the military seventy years ago, fifty years ago, forty years ago, and all of a sudden the internet comes out of that, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's cool! No, I'm glad we did that. That's that, that's pretty awesome." Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Musk's kind of you know SpaceX thing is putting cheaper satellites into the atmosphere and orbit it, and as long as oh, Rocket Lab in, in in New Zealand is doing some brilliant right. stuff with micro satellites, yeah, exactly. really so, cool you know, stuff. Yeah, are those things? Uh, you know, as you say, I, I I'm pretty sure. Elon's not doing something he hates doing because he feels like he should. I'm sure he loves the hell out of it, right? Oh, so I'm sure, sure Jeff is the same. And Richard Branson also went to space. It's it's you know it's on in, in earnest. Um, I'm absolutely sure they are loving the hell out of it. But I'm also I, I would be remarkably con, you know, surprised if these things don't end up with net benefits in different 
sometimes unforeseeable, unknowable, ways, mm. shapes, and forms from this point yep. forward for exactly yep. the reason you, you mentioned. But it, but it will be something that is sort of decades away. I would Possibly, imagine in well, terms I mean, of the, the real things already happening, right? I mean, the, the, the SpaceX stuff and the Rocket Lab stuff is actually already. I mean, Musk can get things into space in a way NASA can't. NASA's using him and others to to put payloads into space in super super cheap ways. Reusable rockets are changing the economics of space, for example, in a way oh, that's sure. not just about his his uh, his. Um, look, I'm, I'm no Elon Musk fan, as our listeners well know, uh, but it's not just about his vanity, right? He's he's actually is changing the economics of of satellite deployment, space travel, a whole lot. I think, yeah, and there's, there's, there's a lot of analogies with any new technology. The internet's a great analogy because when it first mm. came about, you know, yes, yeah, some people made some money there, but the economics weren't really worked out. And, 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 yeah, and That's a good point, yeah. Do you know, it's sort of like the value, yeah, yeah. the huge, like the ridiculous amount of value that we have seen created yeah. in the last decade was because of all the stuff that happened in the 90s and the early part of the 20th, 21st century. So I'm not saying that you won't make money in space and that SpaceX will bleed cash for the next decade, mm. but I just think the real money, when this becomes sort of, you know, a, a, a genuine, indi- there's a genuine and, and diverse and large and thriving space industry. Yeah. I think I think the compar- the returns that we're seeing, t- the returns we're seeing today are very marginal <laughs> compared to what the potential is, is all I'm saying. It's also worth pointing out there are some things that, uh, you know, I'm not here to defend billionaires. Uh, I'm a... I'm a shareholder in in Amazon, so maybe I, maybe I like Jeff. I certainly am not a fan of Elon Musk, and I could take a lead. Richard Branson. He's done a cool thing. I think he seems like a decent bloke, but you know, uh, I'm not here to defend or, or criticise them. I know plenty of people saying, "Oh, billionaires should just pay taxes instead of that kind of stuff," and I kind of have. Well, they some should. They should pay taxes. Yeah. So but, should oh yeah, their, their point is, if they've got that much money, they should pay more to the government. Is kind of that idea of like mm. you know, might as well put tax rates up. If there's enough money left to go to space, you're not paying enough taxes. The and it's, it's a too easy, too easy criticism. I think the. You know, think about Tesla, right? Or think about SpaceX. Those things aren't done by General Electric or General Motors. They're not done by Nike. They're not done by Woolworths or, you know, yep. it, it does take uh, it does take individuals with risk tolerance, frankly, with the capacity, you know, I can't imagine any other public you, company. You want to use the word visionary, don't you? But that's that's too well, strong yeah, a word. <laughs> right. But it's that kind of sense yeah. of like, but who, who, else, who else is going to put billions of dollars into developing? Right. So, so Elon's reusable rockets, right? There is nobody. Maybe Boeing might give it a chance at some point. Maybe NASA does it themselves if the US government give them the money, which is really unlikely. Take Elon out of the picture and says, who else Who else now in 2021 has reusable rockets? Well, the answer already is nobody because no one mm. else is doing it as well as him. Yeah. Um, would it happen? Would it have taken 20, 30, 40 years? And again, maybe it's for nothing. Maybe it's all vanity anyway because mm. space itself is vanity and maybe it never generates enough value to, to justify it. But you kind of need these people who are just out, you know, <laughs> outside the realm of, of normality in terms of just the finances, right? Who else is going to pay the money mm. yeah. to, to put stuff into space? So well, I, they, I think they, that's they add it, some that, value somewhere. Yeah, I, I think you can make... The, you, there should be an argument as to this is probably something that is belongs more in the domain of government and maybe there's yes. a more efficient yes, use yeah. of capital and the way yes. that we structure things. And I, I actually really agree with a, a lot of that. But at the same time, if you say, well, well this is the system we have, yeah. at least we're in a world... <laughs> while it's not ideal, at least we're in a world where there are some people, for whatever motivations, good or bad, or at least driving us forward as a species, there's something cool about that. Mm. Um, even if the people in involved a flawed in, in a lot of ways like all of us. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And that's the thing, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on. Speaking of Berkshire, I was going to ask this question later, mate, but it came up because you mentioned Warren and Charlie and leaving the business. And Jordan just says, hi, Scott, I hope you're enjoying the holiday. This is a couple of weeks old or back now. One for the mailbag. What's your summarised thesis for buying and owning Berkshire Hathaway stock? Not advice, of course. I just don't recall hearing your explanation. 
despite mentioning it on numerous occasions. Thanks, Jordan. I do have to over-mention uh, over Berkshire. I'm going to try and not mention the other company. That's, that's we haven't mentioned the other one that starts with one? K yet. No, so that's, that's, that's impressive. I will leave the other company. <laughs> Maybe it's the other company, capital T, capital O, capital C, which is known from now on as the other company. Um, the, the, uh, yeah, look, it's a fair question. I do own it. I've mentioned a lot. I mean, Warren Buffett is the, the master investor, the best investor ever. Um, I think I don't even know who would be second place. He's an absolute genius uh, and his results speak for themselves. And yes, I absolutely own shares. Um, it's also one of the things where I have to and should disclose those things, but I promise you I'm going to have zero impact on the Berkshire Hathaway share price, whether I mention it or not. So I have no interest in mentioning it for the sake of moving the share price. Not that I would anyway, but it wouldn't matter if I, if I was trying to. But yeah, we mentioned a lot because it's kind of a nice, it's an exemplar for better or worse of a whole lot of different things, right? I think that's the that's the key one. Um should I kick off the you want to add? Is that probably the best way to answer this one, Andrew, you reckon? Uh, look, this is uh, – it's easy for us to sort of – it's, it's, <laughs> it's so super – you go down such a rabbit hole when we start talking about Buffett and, and Berkshire. But to answer yep. the question, well, I guess I won't speak on your behalf, but I assume it's just <laughs> something on. to do with – it's what you might call a jockey play, right? So, you know, um, you're, you're basically backing the judgment of, of, of Warren and Charlie and then when they step down the team that they've built. And that's been a pretty good bet for a very, very long time. Um, so is it going to be the best investment in the world? Probably not. Could you do worse than that? Yep. <laughs> a lot worse than it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it, you don't need to get more, more complicated than that. It, it's, it's because you also know too, that they've given probably more than anyone else, such transparency into their goals, their approach. You know, there's no mystery. It's not, it's not a black box of an investment bank here. They have spent 50 years laying it out for shareholders in as open a manner as they can as to what their approach, strategy, philosophy is. And they've been prosecuting it extremely well. So it just, it just we, we know that they're on, on an approach that, that works. We know it's definitely within their wheelhouse. We know they've built something that is, we're talking about balance sheets before. I mean, God, this thing is bulletproof. This, this, yeah. We could have all kinds of economic calamities and, you know, mm-hmm. barring the absolute collapse of civilization, this will be one of the last <laughs> businesses standing just because it's yeah. so conservatively run, yeah. you yeah. know. So would you look back in 10 years and, and, and can you guarantee that you're going to double the market's performance? Probably not. It's getting to a sort of a size now. That's not, yeah. not likely. But will you do extremely well? I think, I think so. I don't own any, by the way, uh, other than through maybe a US-based ETF, which I probably do have exposure to. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't... I, I should. I don't have a good reason why I don't. <laughs> don't let me stop you, mate. You feel free to go and buy the shares whenever you want. Oh uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, just, I think I've got some exposure. I just focus on the on the ASX. But yeah, it's yeah. it's. I'm not going to fault you for it. Yeah. So look, I, I that's a nice summary, mate. I, I think it's I mean, a couple of things. Actually, we've already talked about a few things. The first thing I will mention is it's actually not the biggest company in the US, but it is the US company with the largest uh, net asset value. So in terms of the, you know, think about the big companies are bigger like Apple and Amazon, their Facebook's I think might be bigger now. Their their you know actual physical asset value is almost zero, right? Because as you say, they've got a couple of couple of servers and a couple of seats, and that's pretty mm. much it compared to their value. Berkshire is a business that is made up of a whole lot of old school industrial companies. So in terms of the asset value it, it owns, it literally has the largest physical asset value of any company in the US, which is which is something. I want to say it's also the largest employer. Private employer, yeah, I think wrong. I think it might There's be. There's a stupidly yeah. large number of people work for Berkshire. It's such a big conglomerate now. Um, for those who don't know the business super well, I'm not going to go through it in detail because it'd take me all day. Berkshire Hathaway was originally a cotton mill way back in the day. Um, 
Elizabeth and a terrible investment. In Hathaway and it, it was, yeah. And it was an awful right. investment, like in and of itself. Like it's become this holding company, but the, yep. the textile business was, Buffett always talks about how much he regrets buying it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Had he bought the actual businesses rather than Berkshire Hathaway itself, he would have been much, much richer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's where the, that's where the name comes from. It's now a holding company, a conglomerate. It's an enormous conglomerate. It has a whole lot of wholly owned businesses, a few partially owned businesses, and a decently sized um, equity portfolio. So owns shares. Famously owns Coca-Cola, American Express, Apple, among others. Um, it's it's a business run by Warren Buffett, the world's best ever investor, and Charlie Munger, who frankly would be much better known if it wasn't for Warren and also much better known had he not given a whole lot of money away to charity and do a whole lot of stuff outside the equity markets. Um, so he he's an absolute genius as well. We both love Charlie. Um, it's a... It's a business. So, to your point about jockey play, Ram, I think this is it's a challenging one to talk about because the reasons for buying it when I bought, I first bought shares, I want to say 15 years ago, maybe, um, are different to maybe why you might buy them now because of Warren Buffett's age. I think part of the story is, is you know, right now, if you're buying it as a jockey play, Warren, Charlie, Warren, they're both over 90, right? There's not that much left for either of them in at the helm. Hopefully, they live long and happy lives. Uh, will they still be running the business when they're 100? I don't know. Will they make it to 100? I don't know. So to some degree, the kind of jockey play part of yeah, the thesis true. is diminishing over time. Mm. Uh, 15 years ago, great reason to do it. It's now, not as much, uh, but that's okay. So in terms of my... So that's why it's a difficult question to answer. I know it's a very simple one, a simple question to ask, which is, hey, what's the, what's the thesis? This for holding is probably different from the thesis of why, what I, why I bought in the first place. Um, I think that Berkshire has above average assets uh, in terms of its operating businesses and why I'm actually not worried about Warren and Charlie dying despite the fact, as you say, Ram, the share price will probably fall when they die because people will freak out and that's fine. The operating businesses are so incredibly strong. You're actually yeah. not paying much. When you buy Berkshire, you're not paying much for Warren, Warren and Charlie's, believe it or not, expertise. You would think they should be worth a fortune. Um, you're actually not paying that much for them because you're getting those shares, you're getting those operating businesses. They own insurance companies, they own uh, you know finance companies, they own all sorts of operating businesses. Um, the Oriental Trading Company is one of them. They own a, a, a relocatable home manufacturing business. Um, they own 90 something percent of an energy business called Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Um, this is a massive conglomerate. So the value of those businesses, the cash flow for those businesses, I think frankly, the Warren, Warren and Charlie premium is almost zero right now. You're getting really good value for the companies. I think they are above average assets, so I think they'll do better than ETF over time. Not hugely better, to your point, Ram. It is so big now, it almost couldn't do that much better without eventually being the whole market itself. Mm. Um, so, but I think it'll do. I think it'll do very well over time. It's a great bottom drawer holding. It is a great bedrock foundational um, position for your portfolio. Uh, I sleep very, very, very well knowing that I'm getting the assets and I'm getting Warren and Charlie for free. And then as you say, they're eventual replacements. Um, they've got a, a group of guys in the doing the investing. Uh, two guys, Todd and Ted, Todd, Wesh, uh, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler. Uh, they've got Ajit Jain and Greg Abel running the business in, in the operation and insurance parts. Um, Warren and Charlie feel great about those guys. I feel great about those guys almost by definition because of that, uh, but even independently. Mm. And look, yeah, you, know, you, won't get, you won't get the Buffett premium. You won't get the Buffett deals. Berkshire is definitely a less attractive company post-Warren because Warren's Warren, right? It's like, you know, you pick the best at anything and say, once that person leaves the stage, can it be as valuable? No, by definition it can't because the replacements won't be as good. That, that's almost, you know, axiomatic. It must be true. Uh, but... You know, I own it because I think it's a great holding position. I haven't added to it ages for what it's worth. Um, 
but I, I love having it in my portfolio. If I am fortunate enough, I hope to pass the shares down to my kids long after Warren and Charlie have left this mortal coil. Um, I, I think it'll be a, just a long-term compounding machine. Solpats is a similar one, right? So I mentioned Solpats on Friday, mate, and I own that one too. It's one of those businesses, even when we recommended it at ShareAdvisor, people were like, well, why would you buy that? Why wouldn't you buy the, the, the businesses that make it up? Or why wouldn't you buy more exciting businesses or whatever? And that's a reasonable question. It's outperformed the market over one, three, five, 10, and 15 years. Um, and it's kind of like, you know what? I'm happy to have boring if I get outperformance. If I can get outperformance for 15 years, like, I, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, how much harder do you want to make life? Because it's not that hard. Buy, sell, pats, beat the market. Okay, cool, done. There's no guarantee, of course, but, you know, could I have tried to buy super high tech, you know, stuff or mining or retail or, yeah, I could have, but I got the minerals looking after me. Um, I'm happy to, you know, entrust a portion of my portfolio to their their, their management supervision. Um, same with Berkshire. I just, I feel really, really good about having it as part of my portfolio. You also get some US exposure. You get some currency and diversification through industry exposure or other stuff we don't have here. So overall, very, very happy owning Berkshire Hathaway. Cool. Anything more on that, mate? No, I think we've sold the hell out of that. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, I've, I, I, I don't really want to share Nick's question, but I will. <laughs> okay. Nick says, hi, Scott. I love the podcast and think you're not only incredibly smart, you're also incredibly handsome. Now... <laughs> Andrew, I just want you. To, I just want you to confirm that's actually what Nick has written here. I've, I've taken the screenshot. You can see it. We're, through the magic of Google Docs, you can see the uh, the, the question from Nick. Can you just <laughs> confirm that Nick's actually said exactly what I've just read. Well, it is, it is hard to to detect tone in in the written word, but yes, it, those are the words that are printed on the page. <laughs> I don't like what you're inferring, so I'm going to assume he's being genuine and keep moving. All right. He says, now that the obligatory flattery is out of the way, which is probably more the point, I've got a mailbag question for you. What is Chi-X? And I thought rather than answer it myself, I'd make you answer the difficult question. What's Chi-X, Andrew? <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to get lost if you push me too far into the details, but it's just a, it's a, <laughs> uh, it's another market. Yep. So the ASX runs the stock market in Australia. Well, it owns one of the stock markets in Australia. Yep. Chi-X is an alternate to that. Some companies are listed on both. Some are listed on only one or the other, um, but it's just a different place you know, it's like you can buy prawns at the Sydney seafood market, and you can also buy it at. Well, I can't think of another market in Sydney, but you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there are other ones that are around there. So, right. yeah. um, your broker uh, will be. I think they've actually legally required to try and source the best available price they for you. There's certain Correct. rules yep. that are around that, but you kind of don't really need to worry about it too much. Whether it's sort of whether the person who's selling you your shares is doing it through Chiax yep. or the ASX, yep. um, you. Yeah, you're still getting the same thing. You're buying actually the exact same thing and the broker will, will just source it from wherever they can that gets you the best price. And because of that, because of all the brokers doing that, there's not much of an arbitrage opportunity there because any any gap, if, if, if CSL is trading at 301 on Chi-X and 200 on ASX, well, mm-hmm. someone someone's going to buy as much as they can on one and sell it straight <laughs> away on the other and make and make free money. And free money doesn't tend to exist for too long in in capitalist systems. So yeah, mm-hmm. it, it yeah. Well, would you add anything? What would you say about it? No, I, I think it's it's just it's exactly what you said, mate. It's just a parallel market um, pl- place of exchange. And so, 
Uh, it's all about competition. It's all about keeping prices down. Uh, for the same reason, there's more than one stockbroker. In theory, the world would only need one stockbroker because if I want to buy and you want to sell, Andrew, we yep. could both use, you know, um, Dodgy Brothers Incorporated to buy and sell our shares and they could charge $1,000 because they're the only mob in town. Mm. Now there is a million stockbrokers around. You can trade for less than 10 bucks a trade. And so, you know, the, the theory is simply if you have competition when it comes to the market on which your shares are traded, as well as the broker you use, hopefully that means lower prices for everybody, more efficient market for everybody. I'm not a million percent convinced it's actually necessary and needed, I have to say. Um, I don't know that it was that badly inefficient or broken that we needed a ChaiX, but it's not a bad thing. There's no downside to it, so we might as well have it. Yeah, yeah. It's, there are there are certain uh, businesses that are natural monopolies. I mean, monopolies yeah. aren't, aren't always, well, often aren't a good thing on, on their own, mm. and people tend to recognise that and governments recognise that, which is why when there are natural monopolies, they, to, they yeah. tend to be very, very, very highly regulated, and the ASX is regulated uh, pretty heavily as well. But, yeah, if, if in theory it, it helps uh, bring more efficiency and... and uh, outcomes for investors, then it's then it's a good thing. Um, I've got to tell you, some of the I've I've used the ASX's uh, services in some ways, and I, I haven't seen the price really been affected too much by Chiax. So maybe <laughs> maybe no. it's not as efficient uh, as it could be. But that's a, that's another kettle of worms. <laughs> it would be it would be the first market where two players both made a lot of money rather than actually competing each other's profits away. Put a it that cozy way. duopoly, perhaps. Uh, yeah. You said that not me. <laughs> hey, another another question from another Nick, mate. Hi, Scott. I'm very new to the world of trading and have been smashing through the pods. I'm also a member of ShareAdvisor. Thanks, Nick. I had a quick query regarding NVIDIA. Now, that's the US-based graphics processing unit maker. Uh, it does a whole lot of uh, graphics engines, graphics chips, using things like Tesla um, and some gaming, literally video game machines. I just saw, says Nick, that it had a stock split and the price has plummeted. I have shares in NVIDIA and therefore it looks like I've taken a massive loss. I was just wondering what a stock split means and whether I need to do anything further about it. Will I gain further shares over time, or what is the way they deal with stock splits? Sorry if I haven't explained properly, but hopefully you might be able to help out. That's from Nick. Mm. Mate, can I say, the market, we, the finance industry finds a lot of ways to make things really complex for people, doesn't it? Like, yep. you know, this could be such a simple business, but you'd almost think that people made money from making this difficult. <laughs> Maybe that's too sarcastic. <laughs> um, so stock splits. Uh, has Nick just done his dough? No, no. Basically, it's you know the, the the analogy we always give is you know the the pizza is the pizza. It's whatever diameter is. So um, Nvidia is a pizza. It's a pizza, and I can chop it up into. I can leave it as a whole pizza, and I can chop it up into two bits, four bits, a hundred million bits. But I've always got the same amount of pizza, right? Mm -hmm. So the argument is is often that um, investment bankers get involved and they say, oh, the share price is too high. <laughs> if we split can I, can it I up... Can quietly, mate? When the sentence starts with investment bankers get involved, you know that someone's making out and it's not us, but keep going. <laughs> well, the, the, the argument is, which might be true in some situations, is that with very high prices, it gets too expensive. So, you know, $500 a share and I've only got 1000 bucks, I can buy two shares. Or they could split that into, into a, a five-for-one share split and take every existing share and split it into five pieces um, and I, I'll, I'll, it will send the price down uh, fivefold but it's balanced of course by the fact that you get extra shares so it all and they'll do that because it supposedly helps liquidity it means that there's more action traded on the market I don't think yeah. that is true in a lot of cases sometimes you see the opposite which is a stock consolidation where you see stocks that get you know the real penny stocks that get down to a fraction of a cent mm. and they need to say well we'll do a 10 for 1 um, uh, uh, consolidation. 
Thank you. Consolidation. <laughs> and and I just do the same magic trick where I just join yeah. join multiple pieces of pizza into one. It doesn't really make much of a difference. <laughs> you haven't lost you haven't lost the scent. Yep, that's important. So basically, Nick, think about your pizza example. Uh, if you had two pieces of pizza, if, if a pizza was twenty dollars and cut into two, they'd be ten dollars each. If you take each of those slice and halve them again, the price per slice would go from ten to five, and you go, oh my god, I've lost half my money. But instead of having one $10 slice, you've got two $5 slices. In other words, your shareholding hasn't changed. There's just a, sl- a lower price and more pieces, but and, your and just from a practic- doesn't change. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And just from a practical standpoint, Nick, it'll all, it should just all magically appear in your uh, in your account. Yeah. So you don't you don't need to fill out any forms or do anything. Sometimes you will have the opportunity to vote on whether you think that's a good idea. But unless you're a very major shareholder, that vote's probably not going to have much of an impact anyway. So you just <laughs> roll with the punches. As you say, Ram, whether, you, whether, you, whether it gets up or not, you end up with the same shareholding. If you've got $1,000 worth of shares, you can have $1,001 shares or $1,100 shares or $110 shares. It's all the same thing. Mate, it sounds pretty pretty obvious when we explain it out, but I've got to tell you, more often than I'm comfortable with, I've had people say, oh, I'd like to buy... CSL is always a classic example. Yeah, like yeah. One of the great Aussie companies, and people go, oh, yeah, but it's so mm-hmm. expensive. Yeah. And, and and they're not saying expensive because of a price or earnings multiple or expensive relative to its true actual intrinsic value. They're saying expensive because there are other mm-hmm. stocks on the ASX trading, trading at 50 cents. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a furphy, and it's, it's, it's surprising how often it... It catches people out. Honestly, even if you are the smallest, smallest of small investors and you've got a thousand bucks to invest, you know, mm. there'll be a little bit of a rounding issue there as well. But <laughs> you, 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 it's 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 never really going to make a difference. With Berkshire, just to go back to that, mm. it does make it, it you know, when, when each one of your shares is worth $200,000, <laughs> now the investment <laughs> bankers have got an argument, you know, to sort of say this yeah. is this yeah. is hard for people to get in and out. <laughs> But for most most share prices, I don't think it's really – it's much ado about nothing is what it is. So, mate, the, I just had a look. The Berkshire Hathaway Class A shares currently $418,975 oh. US. I was out by a factor <laughs> of two. <and laughs> so, call that – what's that? 600 grand Australian, something like that for a single wow. – for one – imagine by putting order for one share, having a hand over 600 grand for it. I can see why people balk with that sort of thing. Can I, do you do you remember this a massive tangent here? Where you and I went to uh, Omaha for the 50th anniversary of Berkshire Hathaway, and one of the things you, which is a horrible touristy thing to do, but you know, when in Rome, we were yeah. in, we there, and you go and you go and do a drive pipe drive by past yeah. Uncle Was's <laughs> house, <laughs> and so we did, you know, we, we did. invaded the poor man's privacy. Oh, it's a very very modest house, which yeah. is which yeah. is famous for. But interestingly, what I remember is that across the road there was a house for sale. And they didn't have the price in dollars on there. The price to buy the house, I think it was like two Berkshire Hathaway shares, whatever that was was at the time. And so the the owners were saying, well, you can buy the house, but it's (laughs) – we're not accepting cash. We're actually, we want, we want whatever it was, two or three Berkshire, Berkshire shares. shares. That was brilliant, wasn't it? Isn't that so cool? Mate, these days probably be bloody Bitcoin, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, look, that's the, yeah, that, that's the, yeah. And, and Berkshire Hathaway does have a class A and class B for exactly that reason. Um, and back in, the, back in the day, Buffett did it originally because people were, fund managers were actually creating a fund and let you buy fractional Berkshire shares because they were so expensive. Yeah. And so he was like, well, hang on, I'm not going to let anyone profit off this. I'm gonna, I'll split the shares myself. Mm. He'd actually split them. He created a second class of share and did it that way. But um, same, same broad idea. It is funny though, mate. I think I kind of half take your point about you know the price per share being too high and scaring people off. Mm. Except we've just finished answering a question about fractional shares. And these days, if nothing else, yeah, if right. you go to your broker and buy a tenth of an NVIDIA share, or a one one hundredth of a Berkshire share, which I'm sure you can do. Mm. It it really does even it makes it even less defensible, surely, to split shares just for the hell of it. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. 
Which, though, takes me to the next question because for all of that, and, and we're right because, of course, we're right. We're smart, capable people. But <laughs> but Dana actually asks us a question. And this one, actually, I assume Dana or Dana, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, comes from the US, or at least I'm assuming so, because it starts here. I listen to the Motley Fool Australia podcast and the prices on the ASX seem so much lower than on the Dow. For example, Telstra is at $3.75. Is there a mandatory fractional share required? And I thought this was a great mm. question because it's kind of asking the exact point we're just making from the opposite perspective where, you know, in the US, if a share's less than five bucks each, they co- they consider those penny shares these days, right? Mm. So there's that yeah. idea of like if it's under five bucks, well, it's not worth buying because obviously it's it's a crap business. Yeah. On the other hand, as we said, we've just talked about Berkshire being $400,000 a share. In Australia, a, a $100 share is expensive. Even a $35 share for many people is seems yep. too high to pay. Well, I can buy this one for 20 cents or this one for $30. Why would I pay $30 for a share? I'd, I'd rather pay for 20 for all the same reasons. Yep. Um, and Dana Rodana is asking exactly the same question in reverse, which is, man, they look low. What's going on there? And it's just yep. funny how we get used to certain prices, right? And all of the things for all of... We like to pretend we're rational a lot of the time and other investors are rational. The reality is this very topic is exactly, and the investment bankers aren't doing it for their own, their, their, well, for, 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 you know, at, a, at a love, right? They're doing it because they know that different investors work a certain way. The Yanks know if shares are less than $5, that's too cheap. Australians, if we've got to pay more than $30, think that's too expensive. The reality simply is neither is actually true at all because, as you say, you can make Berkshire Hathaway a cent a share if you issue enough shares. If you split mm. Berkshire Hathaway shares enough times, it's a $3.75 share the same as Telstra. If you consolidate it's, Telstra a thousand times, you've got a three thousand dollar Telstra share. Doesn't change the value of the company, but the investment community does genuinely think differently about those things, despite thinking, everything we know. It still has that impact, doesn't it? It's a purely cultural thing. It is you know? funny, isn't it? It's entirely cultural. You think, man, this is money and it's rational, and how, how can it be cultural? But it really is. Yeah, I'm sure the Yanks look at the ASX and go, "Wow, everything's so so low in price." And we look over there. And, there's no right or wrong, you know. It's it's Funny, like potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, not not a, not a good excuse to, to make him print, of course, because it's very hard to explain the difference in pronunciation when you explain <laughs> it the same way. Uh, but yeah, Dana, there's 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 no difference. In fact, there is no there is no requirement. It is purely. Um, it is absolutely purely cultural. Uh, if you had an Australian, if you're launch, launching an Australian company in the ASX today, you list it for what? what probably a dollar, Andrew, two dollars. Like the not. Yeah, not they like people is, like yeah. It's dollars. You that price. A very common IPO price is a dollar. It doesn't have to be, but it's mm. it's it's probably set, well, it is definitely set because they feel as though that is a palatable price for whatever yeah. psychological reason. That's it. People are just used to it. Yep. Purely yep. Arbi- mathematically arbitrary. Correct. Exactly. That's the other yeah. thing, right? It's, I think we've talked about this before. I think maybe I did it with Doc. You could actually just rebase every stock on the ASX or the New York Stock Exchange or both to a thousand dollars or a dollar each. Yeah, tomorrow. easy. Yeah. You could arbitrarily just say, and you know what? You know what? People have behaved differently. I, yeah. I would. It'll never happen. But I'd love to see the experiment where everyone says, right, BHP and Afterpay and Commonwealth Bank and CSL and some tin pot miner—they're all worth a dollar a share. Now, which ones do you want to buy? And I guarantee you people do things differently, which, again, has no basis in, in rational reality at all. But I guarantee you people would do buy CSL or CBA or BHP differently if they're all a dollar a share. Yep, yep, I think so. And I think probably the immediate reaction would be that people that saw stocks go from 50 cents to a dollar would think, oh, wow, something's going really well here. <laughs> and those that went from 300 to a dollar, people go, oh, something's, something's going yep. wrong. Share <laughs> something's prices going sold off. Yeah. Isn't that for not a quality company anymore because it's the same price, only a dollar. 
Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, let's, we also cheer when, you know, CBASS will go through $200 a share. As if it means something, it's, um, it means it's, all, it's all pretty random. Yeah. All yeah. right. Last one for today, mate. It's a meaty one. I love this question from Craig because it gets into some really – we talk about tech on Friday. So here's the question. Hi, Scott and Sage Simeon. I will share our Twitter handles in a minute, but uh, there's a hint. Many years ago, says Craig, I read an investor presentation put out by the accounting software company Zero. If memory serves me correctly, they stated it cost them roughly $400 to sign up a new customer. Each customer paid around $40 a month. And so after 10 months, the cost of getting that customer was covered. And the average customer lasted about nine years. Now, lots of numbers so far. This is hard to do in audio, but just stick with us. So 400 bucks to acquire, $40 a month, 10 months, 400 bucks. So they've made their money back in 10 months. But the customer hangs around for nine years. You can see where Craig's going here. They also stated, says Craig, their software was so beautiful. They were growing their custom numbers at 30% per year. After reading these numbers, I could understand why they were not profitable at the time. But in future years, I thought the profits would come rolling in. I thought, wow, investing in this company is a no-brainer. Unfortunately, he says, I didn't have a brain. I thought investing can't be this simple and I didn't invest. And the shares were trading at $16 at the time. I think they're over 100 bucks now. Sorry, Craig. What I didn't understand, I think, was that Zero was clearly explaining the company's unit economics. It's a term I've heard expert investors with great track records mention when they're looking at companies to invest in. I was wondering for the podcast if I could get the thoughts of you two wise gentlemen on the subject of unit economics. Love the podcast and full on. That's coming from Craig. Now, I'm going to start, Ram, by saying I'm not sure that that is actually unit economics the way we traditionally uh, explain it or understand it. Um, Unit economics is normally a store by store, unit by unit, as in a retail unit or a physical unit, as opposed to what this is, which is more about the cost of acquisition and the lifetime value of a customer. Do you want to break those down for me? Oh, man, this is another great question, but a huge one. So you'll hear, so when you start investing, particularly in software companies, you'll hear these terms like CAC and LTV, so client acquisition cost and lifetime value. And yep. as long as the, L, the maths is, is pretty basic, as long as the LTV is bigger than the CAC, yep. well, then, you know, you'll spend money every day. And I think yeah. what it took a long time for the market to, to get a handle on yep. was just how lovely that is when it moves forward. The trouble <laughs> is, is in day one, let's say that back in the day, what, he, what was he saying, 2016 or whenever it was, so that they were doing this and they they would they would want a, a gazillion customers that year. Yeah. Now, they had to pay $400 for each of those gazillion customers. Yeah. So all of this money has just flowed out of the business. gazillion dollars. You know, <laughs> times 400, <laughs> whatever it was. And, and, and yes, they're going to make it back, but it doesn't show up in year yeah. one or year yeah. two. And, I mean... In year nine, well, the money that you spent to acquire the customer's long been spent, but yeah. year after year after year after year, just keep cutting this more and more money just keeps coming in. So it's so it's beautiful. This is this is why so many the market is usually so happy to tolerate cash burning, fast growing companies with big addressable mm. markets, because they know that they they will reach a point where they 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 hit an inflection point and break through to profitability, and the unit economics just work really mm. really really well. So it's it's. I would say I would say to Craig, don't beat yourself up too too badly because in investing things always look super clear and super <laughs> obvious in yeah. hindsight. So yes, they were saying those things during their presentations, but there were other companies. Um, Reckon was saying the same kind of thing, right? That we're going to grow fast and we've got the same business, and it didn't happen mm. because the lifetime value wasn't as good and the client acquisition cost was a bit higher and the fixed cost components of the bit. So, so you know, just because they're going with this model doesn't mean it's going to work. But the lesson <laughs> is is that when it does work, yeah. it is really, really, really beautiful. And the other thing is as well, you got to remember these lifetime 
values, you know, nine years average customer life. They're actually quoting these numbers before they've actually had a client for nine years. <laughs> That's right. They're just extrapolating right. recent retention yeah. rates out yeah. into the future. Yeah. So it might not be. So again, so it's, it's don't, don't beat yourself up too much. But yeah. honestly, when I see, I love these kinds of companies. When I see these kinds of opportunities mm-hmm. where you can push that forward and you feel as though they are legitimate in being able to end up with a large part of the market, which I think Zero has got an excellent chance of, of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Uh, so, so take the lesson and, 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 and as I said before, don't anchor necessarily on what was, the, you know, that was then, this is now. Yeah. But I haven't done the work recently on zero, so I don't know. But potentially it could still be good value. And, and if it's not, you may will find that, you know, next year or next month or next week or who knows, you will get an opportunity because of mm-hmm. some random mm-hmm. thing on the market. Um, but yeah, what a thing of beauty. Don't you love to see that kind of thesis play out? Glorious. And I, I, will, I will also add some thoughts. I'll try not to overdo what you've already done, but... Um, Craig, I'll agree with, with Andrew's point. The first thing is you couldn't have known then that they were going to be successful because plenty have fallen by the wayside. And one of the worst things you can do as an investor, and we've, we've used the example before, mate, just because someone won the lotto doesn't mean playing it was a good idea. Yep. So you can't go, oh, of course I should have played lotto because look, someone won a million dollars. Well, if you doesn't picked make those it, numbers, you would have right. too. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and, and you could have known in advance and all that kind of stuff. Right. So don't beat yourself up too much. As you say, there was a lot of doubt in that investment thesis at the time. That's what they were trying to do. Now, it turns out they did well. Some people made some money because they followed that idea. So I'm not saying you couldn't have known necessarily. But as Andrew says, Reckon and plenty of other companies offered the same sort of idea. Just because those economics are real, by the way, their customer growth could have gone to zero, could have gone backwards. Someone could have reckon could have actually beaten them to the punch, and we could be talking about the reckon story using the same numbers. And zero is now uh, you know a broken, forgotten business that was you know hopefully going to do some good. So there's that. Um, the other thing too is for what it's worth, the zero was the first business in Australasia to really do this, and so you were kind of forgiven for not really getting it, mate. Yes, you're right. It looked like a no-brainer. I've given my afterpay no-brainer story before, um, which is looking at the numbers that they, you know, they were, they were delivering massive growth for retail customers. And I just went, oh yeah, that's really great and didn't do anything about it. So, mate, I'm with you. Um, but yeah, look, hindsight always 2020 at the time. Could you have known? Should you have known? Was it absolutely always going to be provable and, and obvious? No, because that's what they hoped to do or wanted to do. And as Andrew said, they didn't have nine years with the history. So that was guesswork. They basically would say, look, and here's the way they do nine years of lost customer life, right? They'd say, we lose 10% of our customers every year. So therefore, if you lose 10% of your customers every year, the average customer's hanging around for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, is that necessarily true? No, because you don't know that you might lose 10% of your customers for the first two years and lose all of them in year three. So mm-hmm. there, there's extrapolating. Again, they weren't lying. They weren't doing anything wrong, but you weren't wrong to not necessarily believe this was a fait accompli because it simply <laughs> wasn't. You're dead right. The other thing that you got to watch too, there's other. I think live tiles might be an example of this, where the unit economics are brilliant, but at the same time, the cost, but the fixed cost base of the business continues to grow. That's so they add point. more and more developers. You know, yeah, just nice. just the uh, administration costs. So, yeah. so, and you you can tell too, but just by look at what the company focuses on and all its slide decks. You know, presentations to the ASX. <laughs> if if all they're talking about that, but you know, they really go out of their way to not talk about the actual statutory profit mm-hmm. results and casual. You know, they're, they're, they're they're directing you there for for a for a given reason. So yeah, just just another thing. But I, I think Craig's right to he's noticed something that's really valuable. I think a lot of people still don't fully grasp that when well, that model works really well. So you'll see the same kind of things with uh, real estate online, with uh, Seek, you know, with all of those kinds of business. They really really cool um, uh, economics. Um, and when they do, and, and these they're all examples of when they go well. It's great. It really is. So, Craig, keep an eye out for these sort of businesses. You're looking – so, let, let me let me break some of this down. Andrew's already talking about the cost of acquisition or a CAC, a customer acquisition cost. 
Um, you want to know what that is? Um, I will say The Motley Fool has a customer acquisition cost which is in excess of our first year subscription most of the time um, because we know people tend to hang around, they tend to buy other products. Um, that's not giving anything away that wasn't already in the public domain or at least not, in, not assumable or, or guessable. Um, so it's, it's a very reasonable approach, um, but it carries its own risk because you're burning cash, as Andrew's already said. Mm. You may not keep the customer for as long as you think. Um, if they'd spent $400 to acquire a customer, the average customer say for five months, well, guess what? The more they spent, the more money they lost. Um, and new customers can often stay for less time. So if you have a low-hanging fruit strategy, the first lot of customers you sign up are the ones who are probably the dyed-in-the-wool true believers. Mm. Will they stay longer than the average customer? Yeah, probably. Mm. If, I, if I was starting a new business and I got the 400 people who were keenest and love me most, I can, I can assume they will stay longer than the average customer I signed up in year four who I've try, spent four years trying to acquire who don't really love me that much but are happy to give me a go. So again, we need to be careful of the changing nature of those economics. So that's customer acquisition cost. Mm-hmm. Lifetime value, as you rightly point out, and as already mentioned, is simply the amount of money they spend with you times the length of time they spend with you. So 100 bucks a year for 10 years, lifetime value of $1,000, pretty obvious there. Um, interesting to think about, so churn, customer churn is another thing to look at. And that's a, that's a different way to calculate the lifetime value or the lifetime the lifetime, I should say, of the customer, that is how long will they be with you. Um, if you can keep your churn over 90, ideally over 95%, that's a wonderful business. If your customers are that sticky, they're going to hang around almost entirely all the time, you can extrapolate into the future with a really, really nice uh, ability to, to understand that. But you again also need that growth, right? Even if, if zero didn't grow, but so there's wonderful economics, it's kind of worth the terminal value because the customer base didn't grow and then it's just a cash generation question. If you grow, that's a whole different thing. And again, you want to see that growth as well as those other mechanics uh, come to, well, other metrics come into to play. So that's that's really really important. Um, so I think that's that's something you really should think about. Uh, things like, and this is where zero was also difficult to understand. They were spending a squillion bucks on marketing, and so when you think about valuing a business like zero, you've kind of got to try and work through. Okay, what does some sort of steady state look like? And because as you rightly point out, just looking at LTV and customer acquisition cost might have been enough, but at some point they don't keep growing. And so you've got to try and kind of work out how much is worth paying. If the shares now were $5,000 each for zero, they're about 100 bucks. let's say they were 5000 and the economics were exactly the same, I would buy it with Andrew's money. God, no. And so there was, still a, there was still a price, right? There was still a, 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 a there's, there's still a maths need to be done. So even, even if it's one of economics, you can still have too high a price to pay. Yeah. And, and that's, there's no easy way to do that, but you just need to think about that because I think a lot of investors actually make the mistake saying, hey, this, is, this has got a model like Zeros, and as you already mentioned, Reckon. Hey, look, you know, that, that's the same sort of business I should buy Reckon. Well, it's done nowhere near as well because it couldn't get the growth that Andrew was looking for and also the scale. So when you get to a certain scale, your fixed costs are the same, your revenue grows and grows and grows. That's what they call operating leverage. And that's where you get revenue growth in excess of cost growth and if you can grow your revenue faster than your costs over and over and over again, your profit goes absolutely through the roof. And that's the other thing that comes with unit economics, to Andrew's point and to your question, Craig, was unit economics are really where the individual, um, normally in retail, they talk about unit economics with individual store level economics, for example. Uh, because again, if you can get individual stores to do well, you're covering the fixed costs really easily. And the more you can grow that number of units, in this case, the better the financial results. But you've got to be able to deliver on that unit economics or in the uh, software world on that operating leverage because if you can then as you say when the steady state comes that marketing cost drops away and you're just harvesting cash that's what the business you need to understand and so I, I'm like you Andrew I've, I've looked at zero a few times at the current price and I'm not convinced it's not 
good value. I'm not convinced it is good value just yet. It hasn't yet hit the, the scorecard of Motley Fool's share advisor. But it is a business that we've looked at more than once and gone, I wonder how much growth is left. I wonder what the economics look like when they start to roll back that marketing cost. You don't want to do it soon because you want to acquire those customers while ever the LTV is greater than the CAC. You want to go hard as they can at acquiring customers. So you don't want them to roll back the marketing. But again, as Andrew said, that's where new age businesses are harder to analyze, right, than the old ones because they're going to lose money for a long time. Amazon's another great example, right? They have spent 25 years acquiring customers, making almost no money while they've just built this fortress of a business, which is cheapest, biggest, fastest with most customers. They've willingly foregone you know, profits last year, the year before, 10 years before that because they wanted to build this juggernaut business, which they built, same as zero. Um, you've just got to make sure they're going to get there and that's not an easy thing to assume in advance. Very easy to see in hindsight, easy to kick yourself, uh, but don't be too hard on yourself, mate. It wasn't that obvious to that many people. Um, otherwise, everyone would already own zero. Any more on that, mate? No, all good. Now, Nicely Craig done. called you Sage Simeon, which give us an indication. It might be your Twitter handle. In fact, your Twitter handle is Sage underscore Simeon or your company Twitter handle is Strawman Invest, if I'm not mistaken. Is that that's right? That's it. Yep, that's the one. So hit Andrew up. Follow him on Twitter, Sage underscore Simeon. What's that mean? Funny monkey or something? What does it, what does it mean? Wise monkey. And so I, I don't know what I was thinking, but <laughs> I did it when I first joined Twitter and I kind of have been stuck with it. So You know what I love is you've never actually gone to change it. You've kind of gone, I don't know why I chose it, but bugger it, I'm, I'm sticking with it. I, oh, can I like you change that, your handle, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I genuinely didn't know. Is that right? I didn't know. I thought you could, okay. <laughs> Maybe I will. I oh, know. Look, I've stuck with go. it for this long. I'm not, him, not giving up. Hit now. him up no. on Sage underscore Simeon this week because it might be different next week. Um, God, or I'm so straw plugged man, in. <laughs> or so straw plugged man in. invest. Um, <laughs> you can hit me up at TMF Scott P. The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. If you're on Instagram, those handles are the same for me and for The Fool. You're not yet on Instagram, are you, Andrew? Never. Not yet. We'll see. No, not yet. Your Twitter, your Twitter handle should be Ram underscore page is what I'm, what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's not bad. I like that. We'll talk after us. We'll talk after <laughs> us. Uh, if you're on Instagram, TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool AU. If you're on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia or Scott Phillips Money. And if you want to email us, you can do that info at fool.com.au. Mate, all the best with Strawman Premium. Excited to see how well that's already going and Thanks, I'm mate. sure it'll be bigger and better. So that's awesome. If you do want to check out The Motley Fool, feel free to do that as well. So strawman.com or fool.com.au. Hit us up on any of those socials. We want more questions for next week. We'll be back mm. on Wednesday with the Stock of the Week. Andrew and I will be back next Friday and then next Sunday with the mailbag. We've got a busy week coming up, mate. Until then, full on. See you next time. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.